Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at scary moments in spooky movies because it is October. Uh, my name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And uh, this week, actually, we're not going to be talking about scary movies necessarily, but we're going to start off our October series, I suppose, with scary moments in non-horror movies. And so to help us out, we're bringing Miles back to to help talk about this. Welcome, Miles. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me back. It's good to be back. Yeah, we had you. you. (laughs) Yeah, we had you last October, and this, this time we decided to have you not talk about horror movies i know now i have to talk about real movies i don't know what i'm gonna do <laughs> i like the idea of you like only coming out in october it's like the great pumpkin like every <laughs> october <laughs> that sounds about right if i was ever in an episode that wasn't in october i would just find a way to shoehorn in a horror movie anyway that's fair <laughs> i i respect that attitude of as as listeners will know i very much respect the attitude of like i'm just gonna talk about what i want <laughs> whatever the topic is i'll figure it out yeah so so you're you're very welcome on this uh in this space oh well thank you thank you yeah yeah and thank happy thanksgiving to all of our uh canadian listeners yes hey happy thanksgiving <laughs> actually i heard i heard a really stupid joke the other day what do canadians call thanksgiving thanksgiving <laughs> that's pretty bad that's pretty good I, the person who told me that they were american they were so proud of themselves they were just, <laughs> was, i was just like oh okay that's, that's true we do call it that <laughs> yeah it's just like a factual statement <laughs> it's pretty oh, good Off to a good start yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah so we do plan uh we we got a a good four weeks, I would say, of you know Halloween adjacent uh, movie topics, but I thought this one would be a good one to start us off with, right? Kind of ease ease us into the to the scary movie idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it's a fun conversation. I think it's a conversation a lot of like in a lot of horror circles, um, and it's also fun because I think especially like when you're watching movies as a kid some of the things that do scare you are unexpected things. It's not necessarily the obviously scary um, moments, although it can be. It's also things that like come out of left field in otherwise normal movies. Uh, so so it's, it's fun. And there's a level of like specificity that you don't necessarily get in other horror conversations where some of the things that you'll, we'll talk about, I think are like really specific to um, us and yeah. what affects us and less like, you know widely accepted horror things so yeah because i actually had a tough time with this even though it was my idea and i was like oh this is a good idea and then i had a lot a tough time trying to find moments just for that reason like i didn't just want like jump scares that show up like for example a lot of people talk about the the bilbo moment in fellowship of the ring mm-hmm. when he kind of which is a scary moment but i didn't feel like i personally was affected by it that much i was trying to find scenes that were scary to me specifically and it was tough Mm -hmm. yeah there's always like that list of like the generic ones like the Willy Wonka tunnel or uh, the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang like all the ones everyone talks about so even though I'm going to be talking about one of the ones that people always talk about it's uh yeah it was kind of difficult to find ones that really just resonate with you personally well that's interesting because well not to spoil it but your list has one that's like widely discussed and one that maybe no one has discussed in a horror <laughs> context outside of you um 
So, which is, which is a fun, uh, and, and I even talked about too, like, you know, things that affect you as a kid, but then looking at my picks, like, I think I did technically see one of those movies as a kid, but they're not really films that generally people see at a young age. And the other one I didn't see until I was like 20. So, um, I guess I'm a liar in that regard, but whatever, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. So, but it's funny too, like mentioning like jump scares, there was, there was a Twitter prompt the other day that was like, what's the first jump scare you think of? And I realized all the ones I thought of first were from non-horror films. And I think it's just because they stand out so much more because you're not like the first one I thought of is in the dark night when the body that's being hanged just smashes into the window mm, in the yeah. outside the mayor's office because it's just like it comes so from out of nowhere that it really does or like in nocturnal animals where they're looking at like a cell phone or something and you just see like aaron taylor johnson be like bagul and pop out from out of nowhere <laughs> and again because it's just like a weird drama that has one horror jump scare and that's it whereas like it's easier to take them for granted in horror proper so yeah uh, when I did it, I, well, my, I kind of split it. So I took one scene that was one that I found really frightening as a kid. And then one that's more frightening as an adult, which is one that I only saw this year. So kind of covering the spectrum with that. Nice. nice, nice. So I guess I can start us off with the first one there. Yeah. So I'm going to be talking about ET, the extraterrestrial and I think we all have a Spielberg <laughs> on our list, don't we? We do. We do. We do. I saw, I, that that helps solidify what my uh, what my second pick is going to be. I'm like, okay, I have to. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, Mass, so he, master of horror, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> well, I, I mean, he's, there's definitely an aspect to that. Like, there's even movies that we're not going to mention, like um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, for example, that has pretty frightening scenes in it too. Like, I think that's just part of his nature especially when he was an early filmmaker which is mm. interesting though because he has the reputation of being wholesome family man and he is but like i don't know there's there's so much darkness in his movies that at times is easy to overlook when you're just looking at like the big picture of what spielberg is like there's some darkness in that man's heart oh yeah um <laughs> yeah he's got something going on <laughs> so you can't become a billionaire without being a little bit evil. And so, yeah, <laughs> Spielberg's got to be at least a little bit evil. And it comes through, bit. I think. Yeah. Well, even something like War Horse. I don't know why I was thinking about that movie the other day. I haven't thought about it in like 10 years. But the scene where the two like young soldiers abandon like the the military and then they track them down and then they shoot them and kill them. I was like, wow, that's I don't know why I was thinking about that. But I was like, damn, Stephen, like that's that's some harsh stuff for your fun movie about a you know, a talking horse or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah. And that's, and like, it shows up in places you're not expecting it to, uh, or, and then in the opposite way that like something like minority report, which is a pretty dark movie, but it has weird bits of like macabre dark body comedy, like where he's got the, the, his eyes and like a baggie and like he drops it and almost rolls down a sewer grate. <laughs> And he like holds it as it dangles down. It's like, this is like Stuart Gordon. Like, it's such a weird <laughs> choice. But, you know, he sprinkles all, all sorts of like horror adjacent stuff in his movies, even though he's only made arguably one full on horror film in Jaws. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, so. true. Well, the one I'm talking about is a very family friendly movie, which is E.T. Um, but I mean, you're dealing with an alien from outer space and the mystery behind it so there's some there's some scary elements to it but what i want to talk about is one that 
really affected me when I was a kid and is just something that I always stuck with. So it comes after how the Halloween nights were in there. They're building the machine to phone home and Elliot shows up in the morning and he's, you know, freezing and, and, uh, but ET is not with him. And so he sends Michael out to go find ET and, and there's that scene of him like driving by the, the river, the stream, and you just see E.T.'s like half dead body just sitting there and it's and it's like white, right? He's his skin is all whitened. He's got hypothermia. And when I was a kid, that disturbed me so much because I I have loved this movie my entire life, basically, since the moment I've seen it. And E.T., as weird of a looking of a character as it is, like you grow a bond with ET when you're a kid watching this and to see him in that state was frightening to me. And every time I see it, I'm, I, I'm just reminded of how I felt about it when I was a kid. Um, and of course this leads to the whole connection between him and Elliot later. Like they're, they're both being sick together and being basically dying together. But uh, when Michael just finds him that you see that brief flash of him just like sitting among all the refuse of this this nature stream and he's just like almost like he's a piece of the dead wood that's that's sitting around the banks with it um yeah creepy stuff like I it really gets my my bones shivering whenever I see it good pick I think E.T. is one that a lot of I mean because it's such a like a go-to family movie um, although I don't actually have too vivid memories of watching it when I was young, personally, I think I was more into like the Spielberg movies with punching. <laughs> it's like there's not <laughs> enough violence in ET. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a good example too of just like because you foster this relationship with this puppet, then to like put it through the ringer is just very mm-hmm. upsetting to see. I don't know. It's like Kermit with a black eye. It's just sad. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good pick, and I like that you draw on like ET's sort of physicality because as much as he is weird looking, he's also very clearly designed in a way to elicit audience empathy really easily with like the you know the wide eyes and the little frail body and a sort of like derpy walk. Like it's all very like safe and comforting, so it kind of lulls you in for when Spielberg then you know runs them through a shredder. Basically, um, mm. it's interesting. This this exact image has become. I think a bit of a meme on like Twitter where if people are oh, really? posting about feeling like just sort of like exhausted or distraught, they'll post this shot of like <laughs> ET where he's just like, like all frail and withered. I don't think I've seen that to be honest. So, I mean, I don't know how widespread it is, but I've seen it in a couple spots used in that capacity. So <laughs> at this point, my own association with it is slightly comical, but it is a good, it's a very good choice. It's kind of a creepy movie in general. Like you're talking about the design, how it's very like safe and like family friendly. But I don't know. A lot of people I know when I talk about ET, they just talk about how creepy the alien is. <laughs> Which <laughs> definitely, it, yeah. I, I think I I remember watching it as a kid. I think did they re-release it in theaters in the early 2000s? They yes. Did. Okay, yeah, that's how I remember seeing it. But I wasn't around when it was originally in theaters, so it must have been then. But um, yeah, I remember even as a kid, I'm like, this movie's weird. Like it's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but yeah that, that scene in particular you're right it's just that's spooky stuff for an already potentially creepy movie depending on how you're entering it but. well that re-release was infamous for cutting down the violent elements because it, see- it digitally removed the fbi guys holding 
guns and replace them with walkie-talkies. Right. Yeah. 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 Like the Lucasification of it. Yeah. Yeah. The version Le- you've never seen before. <laughs> yeah. Where they splice stills of Pazuzu into it. That would have been amazing <laughs> if they like took out the guns but added in like. <laughs> <laughs> and an ET doing a crab walk down the stairs. <laughs> yes. This sounds like a great film. Oh, man. <laughs> ET meets The Exorcist. Now there's oh, a movie. Boy. Um, maybe I would have liked it more if it was the original version then. I'd, I'd, I'd maybe have never seen the actual original non-edited version then. It's not like a big deal. Like it really is like the guns that they took out. Okay, yeah, so it's, it's not yeah. like they're... It's not like there's like a giant... This creature walking in front of the screen or whatever no, no. Okay. <laughs> it's not as extensive no, Spielberg showed a little more okay. okay yeah it was like the weird point where Spielberg was very I don't know it's it's weird I was gonna say it's like this weird moment where Spielberg is becoming more I don't know like concerned about family friendliness but at the same time the movies he's making in that period are like Minority Report and Munich and War of the Worlds which are all really dark and really kind of bleak so I don't know. I do think as he got older, he got more concerned about like not offending families, but he did eventually relent. Like, yeah, the, the walkie talkies were a mistake. And now when you buy the film, I think it's, I don't even know if it comes with that version still. I think it's only I, the. Yeah, I don't remember. I know my Blu ray has the guns. I, I made sure to check. Yeah, mine does too. <laughs> they put them on the cover just so you know. <laughs> yeah, ET with a shotgun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I think like, because when i I remember first seeing it like thinking that he was actually dead like because he looks dead and i'm thinking like that's probably the first time i've seen like the depiction of something living that's not anymore you know what i mean like because i saw it pretty early when i was pretty young so that was probably a whole other disturbing level to it i would think that's true the first time you see that as a kid and you don't quite comprehend what like what's happening or how you feel about the topic and everything I I can't quite think of the first movie that did that to me, but I know I know what you're talking about. I know that feeling, and it just kind of like sticks with you. Yeah. Well, and also not being smart enough to understand, because obviously you're a kid, understand like just basic plot elements where you're like, as an adult, like, well, clearly he's not dead. There's still like an hour left. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> they didn't kill ET. But when you're a kid, after? like I remember, this was I would have been a bit older, but I was watching like it was the um, Justice League cartoon, the first three episodes they put out as like a movie and in it like batman dies spoilers he's not really dead it's the pilot so obviously he comes back and i remember being young enough or old enough to know like okay there's no way that they really killed him but also still young enough that i'm like oh he's dead no and being really sad so yeah yeah, the fact that it you know that is a good point too yeah yeah so that's my pick our for the first of our spielberg picks um yeah, and that, and I, it's not like I find it frightening now. It's just a reminder of how I used to used to feel about it. I guess. Well, yeah, exactly. You're reminded about how like the emotions that that made you feel as a kid, and that in yeah. itself is kind of frightening. So, no, I I completely get that. That's really and, good. And I think it does still have some power as maybe not like scary per se, but there is a, a horrific element to it. Because I like I remember rewatching ET, and I think the last time I saw it I was probably a teenager, so I wasn't quite an adult, but still finding that like it is very effective at capturing you emotionally even when you're past the age of childhood um so so even if you're like older and it's not quite as harrowing as you are watching it when you're like four i think there is still power in in that imagery and how um how the movie kind of 
sort of uh, cap absorbs you to bring you to that point because the earlier sections, even though there's a creepy element to it, there's also like such fun and warmth in like bonding with E.T. and some of the silliness that when you get to this very dire moment, I think it does still have some some emotional heft. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, Miles, I'll th we'll throw it to you. All right, so my Spielberg pick is, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, one of the ones everyone talks about, and that is the ending of Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And this one kind of works well because it is kind of a famous, really scary moment, but it also traumatized me as a kid when I first saw it. So it kind of, it's a bit of both. And it's the scene where they're opening up the ark and Indian Marion are tied up to a post and the Ark is just unleashed and there's like spirits flying around and Indy tells Marion to close her eyes and not to look at it and the the soldiers are all like oh like it's beautiful it's great and it almost looks like angels flying around and then all of a sudden like the face of the main one just gets so distorted and black and sunken and just terrifying and then that's when people's faces start melting and it starts wreaking havoc and everyone's just screaming and it is like those visuals are so damn scary and they hold up so well like that face melting scene is like still one of the best face melting scenes like ever. Like it's, it, it's crazy how effective that is, but that, yeah, that moment is just pure nightmare fuel. And I watched it when I was home alone while my parents were at a dinner party at a neighbor's down the road. And I was so scared that I turned off the movie and turned off the TV and ran to the neighbor's house and asked my parents <laughs> to come back to the house. Cause I was, <laughs> cause I was so scared of that scene. And I didn't rewatch the movie for the longest time because I was so scared of it. And even watching it now, like it's a great movie, but that scene is just so damn freaky and so kind of out of left field. Like it, it, it doesn't, really fit with what else is happening in the movie like right. i thought this was just like a fun like adventure action movie and then all of a sudden it turns into the scariest movie of all time like it's crazy yeah like if but, you were watching temple of doom that movie would have at least prepared mm. you for that ending. well exactly and i was gonna say <laughs> but not this doom one. has like some equally terrifying stuff like when the guy's pulling the guy's heart out and like that's really scary but then it, it fits with the tone of the rest of the movie but in raiders it just it just comes out of nowhere and mm -hmm. it's awesome but also terrifying well it's funny because like i think it's i'm glad you actually did highlight this because it's an iconic scene but i think it's easy to forget just how truly ghoulish the imagery is mm -hmm. um because it's intense like it's you do see a head explode you see two faces dissolve and melt yeah. <laughs> and there's blood like it's it's pretty gory like it's it really is amazing this movie's not rated r and that's i was gonna say to... i don't even remember what it's rated but pg it... <sighs> because it was pre-pg-13 it was pre-poltergeist so, then yeah and so okay. it's either pg or r and i i think it really speaks a lot to just the clout of spielberg and uh, lucas producing that because i i don't know i feel like if that comes from like a less established mainstream filmmaker with not as much sort of success behind them it gets an mm -hmm. r mm -hmm. oh for sure and the movie it's violent like it's a violent movie like leading up to that but then yeah that that scene alone should should be the r rating right there mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i will say though it's funny because like this is a movie i watched a lot as a kid 
but not so much this scene. And I think it's less because necessarily I was scared and more because like when you're a kid, you have a low attention span mm-hmm. and fall asleep <laughs> before the end. So it's a kind of, it's kind of a perfect movie for, in terms of being violent for kids to sh- or parents to show their kids where it's like, eh, by the time it gets really gory, they're probably clonked out. It's not like RoboCop where it's like the first five seconds. So uh, you get to ease you into it. Um yeah, and it's funny too that like when Temple of Doom came out, it was seen as like so much more dark and violent. And overall it is, but if you're going on a chronological level, like Spielberg was kind of leading you to that point already, I think. Yeah. So yeah. again, he's just, a sick just man. Just na- the natural progression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and every time I see it now even, like it still impresses me just how hardcore he decided to make those faces melt. <laughs> oh, it yeah. Is like you what what actually led me to picking this one is I was trying to think of moments from movies as a kid that were freaky. And I was thinking about the scene in Agent Cody Banks when Hilary Duff violently murders Ian McShane. And you see like his face melting. And it's pretty hardcore, like, actually. I was like, that's a pretty good moment. But I don't know if it scared me as a kid. And I would more just bring it up for comedic effect. So I'm like, wait a minute, face melting. Well, there's another movie that does that pretty well. That yeah. scene from Cody Banks is pretty chilling. I, oh, uh... it's... it's... <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i ever watched it as a kid but i was babysitting some like neighborhood kids i think in like high school and they wanted to watch it because they had it on dvd i was like all right sure mm. and i don't remember much of it because why would i but yeah. i do remember the ending and being like jesus she straight up <laughs> murdered that guy oh yeah it's it's pretty it's it's pretty intense actually mm-hmm. for a kids mm-hmm. movie but you don't really think too much of it you're just like yay she got the bad guy yeah there's so much it's going like on no lizzie kinda... mcguire literally just committed first degree murder <laughs> it's true ian have you seen agent cody banks you know i've probably seen 20 minutes when supervising like one of the younger grades in like a mm. minus 40 blizzard day or something when they watched it at noon hour that's about it <laughs> well, well ian you got you got to check it out man it's a class oh, yeah it's technically been Throw mentioned on the, on the podcast now so <laughs> not as you an official you don't have to watch the second one though it's not as good oh no. thank goodness <laughs> they go to london as evidenced by the title destination london <laughs> i think that i actually haven't seen it so maybe they don't go to london maybe the title no they do just... Okay. Uh, I I think I saw it once in theaters when it came out, but that's it. Mm. Yes, they do go to London. Nice. Anyway, to bring it back to Spielberg. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that I think the the moment you were first mentioning, Miles, I think is the more frightening one, though. Like as as uh, disturbing as seeing those faces melt are, I think the ghost changing is what's really is what's really creepy about this scene. That's that's the one that hit me the most. Like the face yeah. melting is cool and everything, but yeah, that ghost is just yeah, like that's probably one of the best ghosts in a movie ever. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's just the way it's so distorted and just the way the facial structure of it changes. It's so ah, it's so good. Love it. The 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 fact that the effect to do it too is kind of janky actually really helps. Yeah, like it's not a smooth yeah. transition. It's weird and jagged and awkward, um, which is appropriate because it's like this sort of intensely violent moment that really abruptly shifts gears. So, good example of how I don't know analog and older special effects can actually be beneficial in that respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah like Definitely. the the rougher it looks, normally that has a better kind of scare factor to it yeah yeah especially with horror because yeah you want absolutely. that like physicality to it mm-hmm. um it's interesting that like 
Spielberg has kind of tiptoed around a haunted house movie for most of his career. And unless you count him as the director of Poltergeist, which I don't put that on the record, I guess he's <laughs> never actually made one like close encounters. The alien abduction scenes play very much like haunting scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raiders has ghosts. Uh, Last Crusade was supposed to be set in a haunted mansion. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yep, that was Lucas's idea, and Spielberg's like, ah, I'd rather not. <laughs> was it supposed to be the same plot, but just in a haunted house? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure how far along they were. I'm not sure if it was just like, what if Indiana Jones was in a haunted house? <laughs> and I think Spielberg's exact quote was like, well, we just done Poltergeist, so I felt like that wasn't, I didn't want to do it again. And I feel like the real answer is like, that was, that'd be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> How's Indy going to shoot a ghost? Come on now. <laughs> I wonder um, if it's too late for him to make like a true like haunted house horror movie. Because we talked about how he became more family friendly as he got older and everything. And mm-hmm. like, I, I don't know. I wonder if he'd be even kind of up to the task now. Now yeah. his, with his sensibilities and his sort of like, I don't know, more reliance on CG and everything. It'd be yeah, interesting to too, because he seems like it, it's early. So who's to say? But looking at like his films starting in the 2020 specifically, which is wild to think how long he's been making movies. But oh my god, yeah. First with his West Side Story remake, and then now with the Fablemans, which is about his own childhood. It does seem like he's entered this twilight era of his career where he's just like, I'm making what I want. I've wanted yeah. to make a musical my whole life. I'm making it. I've explored my childhood in metaphorical ways in film throughout my career. Now I'm finally just focusing on that. So maybe I very easily be like, you know what? I've never made a haunted house movie. Like I produced one and, you know, but I've never made one myself. Now's the time. I don't know. I I, I would love to see him do it. Cause I do like, and we'll see if it pans out, but I do like this idea of he's in an era where he's done everything and he's got enough clout that he can just make what he wants. So yeah. Yeah, they should they should get him to do the conjuring four. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? It's like when David Fincher was being courted for World War Z2. And yeah. like, must we? <laughs> like if this is what Fincher needs to do to work, I guess, but uh, yeah. If this will get a third season of Mindhunter, then fine. But... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's never happening. It makes me so upset. I still have hope, but you never know. <laughs> Everyone seems to want to do it except Netflix. So they wanted to, but he was just busy with other oh, stuff. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. Wait, sorry, totally off topic, but well, it, it's a it's it's a topic worth pursuing. It's an, it's an important topic. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, yeah, exactly. So nice. Yeah. Well, good pick, Miles. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll stick with the uh, Spielberg a little bit longer. If ET or his First two favorite letters, his third and fourth got to be AI, artificial (laughs) intelligence, Um, which I have vague memories of watching as a kid and just being not necessarily scared, but certainly like weirded out by it because it's a strange film. Uh, We've talked about it before on the show. On the surface, it has elements of like being an E.T.-esque whimsical adventure and it has a fairy tale tone, but it's also so dark and so depressing like fundamentally it's a story about a little android boy who just wants to be loved and he never will it's like just saying that it's like that sucks it's so just like hopeless but the section i want to talk about is the flesh fair where after um david has been let loose in the world and uh you know is exploring on his own he gets captured by this weird um brendan gleason playing this character who's like this circus ringleader type who 
hosts a show called The Flesh Fair, where they put forth robots and destroy them horribly for an audience of rednecks to cheer on in sort of frenzied intensity. And so the most obvious horror element is you're watching these robots just be slaughtered in horrific ways to a, a spectacle of an audience that's just gleefully loving every second of it. And the main way that it's revealed to both you and to David, the character, is he's looking at one android who's like this, um, she's sort of this middle-aged woman, but also a robot. And she's smiling at David and David smiles back at her and it's kind of nice. And then she has a bucket of acid dumped on her head and his face starts melting. Spielberg again loves melting faces apparently. <laughs> um, so the sheer terror of like the violence you see inflicted is one thing. And then David gets set up there and he has acid lingering over his head that might fall. And the Spielberg even amps the tension by having just like a single drop land on his shoulder and start to burn and he starts freaking out. So Spielberg is constructing the scene in a way to like build that tension and get you to panic. But then there's two other levels that I find it also effective as horror. One is that all of the robots that we see are varying degrees of uncanny valley um which is just uncomfortable to look at david looks human but his behavior is so bizarre and off that he ends up producing that effect anyway and then these robots are all varying degrees of humanoid but they're all off they all have weird proportions or they have the overabundance of metal and uh, a lack of flesh so that creates discomfort but then what I think is truly like sticks with you and makes the scene all the scarier in a roundabout way is that even though David is spared from being murdered in this scene, he only is spared because the audience thinks he's a real boy. And they're like, you can't do this to a kid. And to me, that's like the subtle element that the more you think about it, the worse it gets because they only want to spare him because they don't think he's a robot and he is. And if they realized he was, they would gleefully cheer for him to die just like everybody else. And the idea that the only reason it's not fun when he does, when he dies is because he looks cute. And that's this really disturbing idea where even though the character is saved, he's saved in a way that still preserves how messed up and, and uh, horrific the society is. Um, and it sticks with you. So, uh, and it's also called like the flesh fair. And that's just like a hardcore horrible thing to call anything uh so yeah that's my my spielberg moment flesh fair sounds like an exploitation movie from the 70s that i would own on blu-ray <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> it does i i haven't seen ai since i was a little kid and i barely remember it but i think i remember it being very traumatizing and i'm not even talking about that scene is there a teddy bear in the movie yes that like talks yeah. or something mm-hmm Okay, the that's OG all I really remember movie. about the movie, and I remember being so freaked out. I maybe didn't even finish it. Maybe I turned it off after that, but I remember being so freaked out by that. And then when I saw that you were doing this, I looked up the scene you were talking about, and holy shit, like that is a, <laughs> that is a, that is a messed up scene. Like, and I didn't really understand the context at first, and I thought that Brendan Gleeson was gonna like save him, and then I was like, no, wait, what's he doing? No, stop! Like. <laughs> But yeah, oh my god, like that is such a dark. <laughs> what, what's that movie rated? That I, oh, I don't know. I would think e? R, but it might be PG thirteen G. Good question. Yeah. Um. It. It. The funny thing is too is like I could have chosen like a ton of scenes from this movie. There's a scene later on where David meets another David robot, and he goes ballistic and beats it to death with like a pipe. <laughs> god. Like it's a it's a very upsetting film, and even like the ending for a long time was criticized as being like schmaltz and sentimental and it's really not it has the veneer no. of being like a happy ending but it's actually like everything else in the movie 
so depressing and sad. And the more you think through the layers, the more depressing and sad it gets. Um, yeah. And even like some of the, just the visuals would be freaky as a kid for um, subconscious reasons. Like so the product was originally a Kubrick idea. And you can tell because some of the architecture in Rouge City is like highly sexual in the way that a lot of a clockwork orange is. So like there's a tunnel that... Uh, cars drive through that's literally shaped like a woman's mouth like wide open with like bright red neon lipstick and it's like as a kid you can imagine just being like i have confused feelings about this and i'm not sure why <laughs> but overall being like freaked out because like even like normal depictions of sex when you're like seven are freaky when it's this like heightened nightmare world it's like way worse so so yeah there's a lot going on um well, there's even a lot of small scenes that are freaky. Like the one that that pops into my mind as we were talking about this is where he's trying to eat at the at the dinner table and his face just like droops because he can't handle the the yep. actual food. Oh, that's the scene I'm thinking of. That was the one that really got me as a kid. You just triggered that memory. That's yeah, <laughs> that's the one. Is that mm. is that early on in the movie? Or that's early. That... Okay, yeah. yeah it's I don't like think I made act. it past that. I don't think I made it past that scene. <laughs> that's I think fair. It was like this is a movie I shouldn't be watching and turned it off. <laughs> yeah. It... Sorry, my cat's jumping up on my fridge and knocking shit over. Um, I'll pick it up later. Yeah, it, it's an intense watch. Um, it's been steadily like it. It was very mixedly received when it for mixedly had a mixed reception when it first came out, and it's still divisive, but it's building more and more of a cult audience i think it's one of spielberg's best movies um yeah and it's got some of his most disturbing imagery and the funny thing is and i think i might have talked about this the last time i brought up ai on the podcast is that for the longest time people assumed all of the really dark stuff was from kubrick and all the more sentimental and like hopeful stuff was spielberg and spielberg has said it's kind of the opposite all this schmaltzy stuff was from the story, the script that uh, Kubrick was having developed. And a lot of the really dark stuff, like the flesh fair, he's like, that was my idea. So again, <laughs> this notion that Spielberg is actually a sick freak uh, indoors. I so I'm something here. I think yeah. <laughs> and this is his uh, sickest, most freakest movie. Um, it's funny though, because like even in his like action films, like Jurassic Park's a good example where the spectacle often isn't necessarily the, you know, the, watching dinosaurs fight it's like the suspense of will the characters survive um which is something that the newer movies have mostly lost but um he even when he's not making like horror you can tell he's like a student of hitchcock and how he generates suspense and tension so yeah absolutely even though he doesn't strike people as like an immediately hitchcockian filmmaker he's more subtle in how he employs that he's not like a brian de palma where it's like he's very clearly showing off what a fanboy he is so I mean, he's just, that's just one of the masters that he's taken his, his skills from, which makes sense. I liked how you mentioned uh, the idea of all these different levels of like robot likeness in the, in the affair. And mm. <laughs> isn't there, remind me if I'm wrong, but isn't there what, like a Chris Rock? There is a Chris Rock bot. In that scene. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Who gets like launched into a cannon and yeah, then fired right. away. Yeah. There's some like, there's some weird celebrity cameos there from Chris Rock. And then the band that's performing is the heavy metal band ministry um, who Kubrick initially approached to work with them. Uh, and then apparently there is some awkwardness between uh, ministry lead singer, Al Jurgensen and uh, Spielberg, mainly because of Al joking that he thought uh, the movie AI stood for anal intruder. <laughs> <Spielberg> <laughs> being like, 
why am I working with you? So good old ministry, classy <laughs> band. So I love ministry though. So I'm very happy when they show up. That's that's as much as it's like a horrible dystopia. I'm like, ah, oh, maybe it's not all bad. <laughs> so yeah. I, I need to watch this movie or rewatch it or get through it actually. So. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, yeah. the flesh fair is interesting because it's very much like it's its own segment of the movie that's very different from everything else around it. Like it's a, uh, and it's it's long. Like it's a fairly long part of the section of the movie. Um, mm. Yeah, the movie kind of breaks down into like individual, like uh, discrete sections of the yeah, society. Yeah, very much so. And the way that it reveals itself, I think, is really smart because you know it's some degree of a dystopia early on. But you start the first act in this really sheltered, affluent couple. So you don't really realize how bad things are outside of that circle until you start to get into the flesh fair. And then into act three, you get the urban sprawl and decay. And then into, I guess, act four, you have the more like really removed and distant, isolated character. And then act five, it gets really weird. So (laughs) yeah, it is very much just like slowly revealing different like pockets of this world. Yeah, you're you're kind of I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before about how my relationship has been roller coastery with AI. You're kind of making me come back on the upside. Yes. <laughs> yes. I won't lie. Maybe I should check it out again. I mean, I had a mixed reaction when I watched it in high school. Although my my theory is that because technically I watched it in full screen and I was only getting half the picture. So when I got to watch it in widescreen, I'm like, oh, it's like twice as good. That makes sense. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, um, AI is great and horrifying and uh, a fun time with the whole family. So. Is it supposed to be like a family film? Like who's the target demographic for that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody knew. I think that was baffling people when it came out. Because that's yeah. why I was like, isn't there like a talking teddy bear or something? Like, there is a talking it? teddy bear. Yeah, he's a yeah. robot, too. Um yeah, that's the thing. Like, it has a very uh, the best comparison I could probably give would be something like Pan's Labyrinth, where it's like a fairy tale structure and archetype, but in a very adult context. Except I think because um, Spielberg has the reputation he has, there was an assumption that it was like to some degree a family movie. Right. Um, and like even the poster is like very minimal. It's just like the letters AI, and you have a silhouette of David, and it's like this is David. He's eight years old. He weighs whatever. His love is real, but he is not. Mm-hmm. So it's like you could imagine it being more like, I don't know, Bicentennial Man or something where it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it's a robot who wants to love. And it's like a happy story. And and I think, honestly, Spielberg's direction, whether intentionally or not, plays into that because there are scenes where it almost is whimsical and charming, but it's not. And that makes it feel way worse. And I think that's the point. But I also think it really screwed with people's heads. But they're like, what am I supposed to feel about this movie? Um yeah so nice yeah nice all right well i think we'll move on from uh spielberg (laughs) so let's go to bergman so uh, my next moment is comes from a movie i just actually watched this summer which is fanny and alexander from 1982 Um, oh boy yeah <laughs> so i finally bullied someone into watching all five hours yes I'm yeah, so I was gonna say, did it take you all summer to watch it <laughs> <laughs> yeah one hour a month <laughs> yeah i did watch the five five and a half hour cut 
uh, it was just, I just woke up one morning. I woke up fairly early in the summer because like I have this some, and I was like, well, I don't really have anything else going on today. I'm I'm gonna do it. I'm just gonna put it on, make Dan happy, and there we go. And of course, when I went into this movie, I was like, this is a five and a half hour movie in a different language about a bunch of mopey kids. Like, this is going to be complete homework. This is absolutely going to be a chore to watch. Ended up falling in love with it. Like, it's, uh, there's so much going on in this movie. And I, I ended up being really impressed with it. I legitimately loved it. And, oh, I forgot. I was going to show you, Dan. I actually bought it. So that tells you how much. Yes. <laughs> that tells you how much I, I fell for this movie. Because uh. I don't. I don't buy movies haphazardly. That's true. For anyone who doesn't know, Ian has a very selective regiment for which Blu-rays make the shelf. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, on the other hand, am an open door. I've got like Hocus Pocus on my shelves and stuff. Oh, so no. It's like... I'm, I'm, I'm with you, man. Mine, mine is the most like, scattered, weird I've mix. tried to persuade Brooke to get rid of some stuff. I'm like, can we get rid of the Fifty Shades movie? She's like, no. God damn it. Because <laughs> they're like right by Truffaut, too, in my collection. So it's like, ugh, ugh. <laughs> you gotta learn to live with it <laughs> what can you do uh so Unless the you're moment Ian and you live in an isolated world True. of finite rules of what makes what's what shelf worthy that's right no. <laughs> and you can be like that you just have to choose to be yeah and then ruin my relationship like sorry hon we can't share blu-rays anymore because <laughs> i don't trust you that'll go over well <laughs> yeah no i'm the same my blu-ray shelf it has like all the how to train your dragon movies and then like cannibal holocaust <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's all it's all over the place <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so the moment that uh that i find really freaky really creepy is it's later on in the movie where alexander is he's at this he's kind of staying overnight at this uh family friend's house for reasons that I'm not going to get into plot reasons. Um, and there's, it's kind of like this the puppet theater place. Um, I don't know. Maybe you can help me out. Dan, is that. I would say that's an accurate enough description for yeah. where we're going with the... what it is. And so the scene is he's a, uh, it's in the middle of the night, but he can't sleep. So he's kind of wandering the house and he finds this room. And all of a sudden, he hears this like deep booming voice, um, and the voice is basically telling him that he is that the voice is God, and he's saying to Alexander, like, "Are you, are you willing to let me to see me?" Basically, he's like, "I'm going to show you what I look like," and and then the walls start shaking, um, and the way it's the way it's filmed is pretty creepy there's this door that just like slowly creeps open and this voice is talking to alexander and then this when you the walls start shaking and suddenly this puppet comes out and we're we're talking puppet we're talking like a a wooden marionette but it's huge and it's in this it's like a caricature but it's of like you know the classical depiction of god right with the white robe and everything and he's wearing the sandals and the first thing you see is a sandaled giant sandaled foot come down and you're like and it seems like it should be dissipated at that point right because oh it's a it's a marionette but no like it keeps playing like god is almost taking the form of this marionette to show to you know show himself to alexander and that 
it's almost creepier in that sense um, because I think there's so many, I mean, it's the movie is a drama of this, um, of this family. That's the Swedish family. That's fairly wealthy, but they kind of go through all this family drama. So it's not like a, it's not a horror movie and it's not a paranormal movie necessarily, but there's they he throws all these paranormal elements in that kind of, prepares you for this scene so that you're not quite sure what's happening is he actually seeing a vision is he not um and i won't tell you what happens i'll let the audience figure that out when they decide that they're gonna spend five and a half hours of their morning watching a movie watching this movie which you should by the way (laughs) it does have a discreet episode so if you want to split it up into like five nights you can pure yeah that's true And I think um, another very creepy part about this is that there's a moment where the puppet actually just falls and it collapses on the floor, which sounds like, okay, how is that creepy? But like I mentioned, E.T. was a moment that is something that freaked me out when I was a kid and just kind of stuck with me. This one freaked me out as an adult because it's there's a metaphysical element going on here. Um the the movie itself like Bergman we've talked about Bergman before but he likes to explore lots of themes and one of the themes is um, people's relationship with God right and their belief in God or their their uh, crisis of faith right whether they do believe or not and they're always struggling with that Um, Seventh Seal done has done this very well but even his more contemporary movies like Wild Strawberries does it too and this one is very much so in that in that same vein right because alexander is struggling with his belief in god and the fact that he is a approached by god and then the fact that god collapses and so then he's still got that question of is this real is this not real because this whole movie has like this this theme running throughout it of like worlds within worlds or stories within stories and there's so much going on here dan i think you talked about the the scene with the chair right where the dad is making up a story about a chair and that fits into it even the opening shot of the movie where you see alexander looking through a dollhouse it's like these layers of reality sitting on top of each other and you ultimately have the question of what is real Uh, and this this scene this freaky moment just puts it all together and basically makes you question reality itself in a sense right where you're like okay are we um is god a figment of our imagination or are we a figment of his imagination are we in fact real or are we like you know are we like the the images in the famous plato's cave analogy right so, and it kind of just brings everything rushing in in this really creepy moment, and it's a freaky scene, I think. Yeah, it's uh, an awesome pick. It's a great scene, and there's a lot there in terms of like breaking down the sort of god imagery and how it fits into Bergman's filmography, and also how it fits into Alexander's story. And thinking about, you know, on the one hand, it's this ominous image of the sort of power of god or can be read that way because it is Mm -hmm. this foreboding scene and even though it is a marionette and it's clearly a marionette once we see it it's still huge it's still shot with this imposing power 
but it is a puppet. And you think about that in terms of like a crisis of faith or a lack of uh, conviction in that faith and this losing of respect for God, both in terms of the diegetic story and Alexander who's lost his father, who has uh, been victim of abuse by this horrible bastard of a stepfather um, and his own, you know, uh, faith has been shaken, but also Bergman as someone who struggled with questions of faith his entire life and they're all over his film. So there's a lot of richness just in the idea of it being a puppet God and what that mm -hmm. might say. And also like a, the film, I think is in many ways about false authorities. I mean, certainly the, and, and learning to rebel against the false authority on because it's false because it, it 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 is unjust or it doesn't deserve the power it has so there's there's some layered qualities to this scene in terms of where it fits both within the film as a whole and in Bergman's filmography and uh yeah it's also it's just really creepy <laughs> like it really does a good job building up this sort of frightening figure that even when you know oh it's it's fake it's still scary and I think yeah, that's pretty it's impressive unsettling yeah, I was going to say, so I'm I'm a coward and I haven't seen Fanny and Alexander, <laughs> but I did uh, I did look up the scene and yeah, it is damn creepy just seeing it on its own, having no real context on what's going on. And yeah, like the door kind of slowly opening and the ominous voice. And I don't know if it's because it's in Swedish or not, like, you know, a language I don't speak. So it makes it, you know, eerie, but it is really, really creepy. And as I will continue to talk about with my next pick. I think marionettes are terrifying. So yeah, that that whole setting is just yeah, that that's great. Like I would have thought that was from a horror movie if I didn't know it was from Fanny <laughs> Alexander. Like yeah. it is a really, really creepy scene. And yeah, not even knowing the context of the rest of the movie. That that little that little segment alone is, is that's good stuff. Like that is like like spine chilling. Mm -hmm. It really is. Yeah, it reminds me of that. I think it's a Roger Corman quote, although I heard it from Jonathan Demi, but talking about how like the scariest type of shot in all of movies is a camera appro approaching like a closed door and like mm -hmm. a door slowly opening because yeah. it's just like inherently like fills your mind with with apprehension and, and also curiosity. Um, and that's definitely on display here. It's also Fanny and Alexander, like it has other elements of like the supernatural in terms of like we see Alexander's go uh, the father. Alexander's father's ghost a couple times we see yeah. a ghost near the end that I've talked about before as being like my favorite scene in the movie we see death at the beginning of the film in almost right. a parody of how he appeared in uh, uh seventh seal although he's even creepier because he's it's just the skull yeah. um but in all these cases it's a question of like how literally is this meant to be taken you know how much of this are the characters seeing and how much of it is more uh just metaphorical in terms of this idea of like the memories of of you know the people we know lingering over us and and also the sort of specter of death haunting in a, in a more abstract way and the film kind of tiptoes between being very literally real and being more abstract so this scene too uh and again won't spoil how it plays out but even when you kind of when it chooses a side it still kind of keeps its lingering mystery because everywhere else in the film it's been so um so fluid in in, in appro uh, approaching questions of the supernatural in ways that are both can be rationalized and explained but also can still carry that mystery and, and sort of haunting quality so yeah very well said um it's 
this is in the three hour cut. I was, I was unsure. Like I was, mm. I was wondering if this is one of the I mean, two and a half hours worth of scenes that weren't in the original theatrical cut, but yeah. I was, I just got the criterion, which of course has both versions. So I checked and I'm glad that this is in the, me in, too. The, in that version. Cause it's a pretty, I think it's an important theme scene in bringing the themes together. Mm -hmm. And it's like we said, it's just so well filmed. It's been a while since I've seen the three hour cut. And when I saw it, I was much less of a Bergman like fanboy than I am now. I want to say most of the cuts are to that first section of just introducing the family, that first episode where you're just spending a lot of time um, in that space and with that, like it's like the one night party kind of yeah. thing. I think a that lot of the cuts me because I love that stuff. <laughs> Some of it, a lot of it is still maintained, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very much very vocal about like the full cut is the way to go, even if it's more daunting. It's funny though that like Bergman. You look at his career and he was actually like pretty restrained in terms of like runtime. Like almost all of his movies before 1974 are under two hours. And a lot of them like Seventh Seal, like this great ponderous art film about life and death. It's like 90 minutes. Yeah. And then he gets the scenes from a marriage and it's like five hours. <laughs> <laughs> I've earned it. I've made short films for 30 years. I'm going to cut loose a bit. Um and then, yeah, I think it's just uh, Fanny and Alexander and Scenes from a Marriage, which are like these sweeping run times. Everything else is pretty constrained. So. Nice. Yeah. There we go. So I watched it, Dan. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> one of these days, Dan. One of these days, I'll watch it. It's fair. It's fair. <laughs> Not that um, I don't want to, because it sounds very, very interesting from everything I've heard about it. It's just, yeah. That, it's daunting. It, yeah. That runtime is daunting. It's like. Can I can I sit still for that long? Like I don't. <laughs> I I can I can totally understand that. Like I've been, I was kind of marathoning through the uh, Kenji Mitsuguchi films that were on Criterion Channel that I hadn't seen. I was going in chronological order, and I like stopped because the one I'm on now is technically two movies, the Forty Seven Ronin. That's like four hours, oh, and boy. from what I understand, it's not considered one of Mitsuguchi's best. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I am excited to watch it. And part of it too is like I want to. I don't want to just have it on and like not give it my attention. So I want to make sure when I do watch it, I'm like in the right space and have the time to do it. But yeah, it's very easy when dealing with the realities of you know a life and a schedule that you have to kind of put those on the back burner. So yeah, I think I didn't the uh, screening room didn't they play the five hour cut? I think that's how I would want to see it. I'd want to I want to basically be held captive like yeah. Alex and Clockwork Orange to watch it, kind of thing. <laughs> like just like force myself to pay attention because I mm -hmm. I know me and after like an hour and a half I'd start fidgeting, I'd start looking at my phone and mm -hmm. yeah. So I think yeah, I need just need to be in the right setting. Mm -hmm. That's 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 how I saw it. Um, and actually I will say like I. I I did joke about like you can watch it in episodes if you're a coward, but with <laughs> scenes from a marriage, I did actually watch it as like the five episodes or four, however long it is. And while I would be curious to watch it in the setting of just one go and just like, you know, bathroom breaks, um, I understand that that's not really always pl uh, practical. And I did still think the film was very effective in installments. And it was actually kind of nice because every day I would watch another 40 minutes or so it was like a nice little treat for myself uh especially because and this is definitely an aside but every episode of scenes from a marriage ends with bergman reading out the credits over footage shot on pharaoh which is where he spent a lot of time and filmed a lot of his movies so like every episode ends and it's like this was episode four of scenes from a marriage 
while you look at this nice footage from Pharaoh, I will read the credits. And I'm like, I want every movie to end this way now. <laughs> like, I don't care what it is. Like, this was a presentation of Blood Feast. The year was 1970. <laughs> while you enjoy this footage from Pharaoh. Like, it, just, it was just nice. That's cool. That's yeah. awesome. Peace. Yeah, so I suppose we'll keep the theme on puppets. and Yeah, uh, so <laughs> on, on that note. So not only do I think the scene I'm going to talk about is frightening it's frightening purely for personal reasons though i'll try to argue that it's visually creepy in general but not only do i think that this scene is terrifying i think this might be the scariest scene in any movie i've ever seen (laughs) and part of that has to do from when i saw it as a kid but even to this day if i just look up the scene i like I, i cringe and like my like I don't know. I get goosebumps. And I'm talking about the goddamn sound of music. (laughs) In the scene that does not progress the plot at all, and it's just kind of there, when, um, God, what's her name? Maria, where Sister Maria is putting on a marionette musical presentation for Christopher Plummer, and it's called The Lonely Goat Herd. And it's just like a like a four minute music musical number with these marionettes dancing around and singing about a lonely goat and then like a lonely like hiker who falls in love with the princess and those marionettes they're like the classic um, like Eastern European design of marionettes and they are just so freaking scary like i i don't know what it is i mean the concept of marionettes in general of this sort of like hidden figure pulling the strings and controlling it that alone kind of messes with my head a little bit but then you add that they're just really visually creepy looking and that the song they're singing is just so like nonsensical and weird it just i I hate and love this scene because it's like so freaky, but it's so like stupid at the same time. And yeah, just the look of the marionettes and the way their eyes move back and forth. And there's a scene where there's like two men at a diner and one of them, their eyes are like squinted and then their necks extend and their heads just like pop out. And oh God, oh, just talking about it. It's just, it's freak. I, I hate it. It's just like, it's so bizarre. And it, like I said, has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It's just kind of there. They don't even build up to it. And when I, I, I don't know why, but when I was a kid, The Sound of Music was a favorite in my household for some reason. So we watched it many times. And that scene, I would just be like covering my eyes with a pillow. Like, it's just, I don't know. It, yeah, like it's marionettes in general, but then yeah, the song that they're singing and just the way that they look and it just yeah, it, it just freaks me out. And that's whenever I think of scary scenes, that's always what comes to mind. And I I don't that's know great. that style of marionette is just it's so it's not even uncanny valley. Like they're very cartoonish and they're very fake but they just have really distinct features. Like they have really big nose and really big eyes and the eyes move and like the unnatural movements where they're kind of like floaty. And I think when I was younger in school, they did a marionette presentation of uh, Rumpelstiltskin, which is kind of a creepy story to begin with, but then you add the marionettes to that. So, I mean, seeing that just traumatized me and then Sound of Music just brought it all back. I don't know, man, but that... 
I don't know. Of all the movies, of all the horror movies I've seen, The Sound of Music reigns supreme in having <laughs> like one of the creepiest moments. And I don't know. I seem to be alone in this. Like I've Googled, you know, lonely goat her scary, expecting there to maybe be like, you know, a resurgence in people being like, oh, remember this movie as a kid or remember how scary that scene was? But no, I think I'm just, I think I'm just alone. But, or you're a pioneer. Maybe. May, or maybe <laughs> not everyone my age grew up on The Sound of Music, which would make sense given when it came out. But Maybe. I can see it'd be pretty common that a lot of people would have, though. Well, they used to play it all the time around Christmas, which yeah. I don't know why you'd want to traumatize your kids around Christmas time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I want to say I don't... I must have seen it at one point when I was a kid, but I don't feel like it was in my regular rotation. I think, honestly, a lot of the holiday special stuff i would have watched was more like cartoons um oh for sure like it's not it's not a christmas movie at all but but yeah you're right it it does sort of linger as like a like a christmas or easter like big family get together it's probably because it's so long that like when you're all together you got nothing else to do it's like oh sound of music's on oh for sure no i get it but (laughs) yeah um i think you're on to something with this um in part because i was just thinking about how marionettes marionettes in general as they sort of endure in pop culture to me often have like a horror connotation. Like we talked about the Fanny and Alexander scene, but like, I don't know. I can't think of too many instances by which puppets in general are used in stories now where it's not meant to be horrifying. The only exception is stuff like the Muppets, but those are, such a different i mean they're not puppets they're muppets that's distinct but also like not they're quite not... A, not quite a mop and not quite a puppet exactly <laughs> um but like the they're more like there's like a fabric quality to them they look they look visually soft they're like stuffed animals basically whereas marionettes are like hardwood and and uh really like cold like i do find that yeah like visually they are creepy and uh i think it says a lot that like the actual kid stuff that's used with puppets have leaned away from that visual and more towards stuff like sesame street or the muppets um because well, yeah even, they, uh, they look sorry. weird talking about christmas uh the polar express there's a scene where the main character gets caught in one of the cars that has nothing but marionettes in it and he's being taunted by the uh like the hobo that lives on top of the train he's controlling like a scrooge marionette and he like taunts him but it, it's played out to be frightening like it's supposed to be scary so it's not like oh look at these fun marionettes it's like no this is like a creepy thing so mm-hmm. uh, it's probably one of those things that just kind of culturally it used to be such a big deal and then now it's seen as like you know this creepy relic of the past but i don't know i think they're scary man and that scene <laughs> is just that scene is so freaky and the way they look there's this one puppet one marionette in particular that looks just like eli roth that really freaks me <laughs> out where it's got like really thick dark eyebrows and like spiky hair and he's playing like he's playing like a uh i think a flute and then every time he blows the eyebrows go up and down and it's just <laughs> it's just a creepy visual <laughs> and that stupid song <laughs> <laughs> like the the yodeling that they do and the well, way the song, and they yodel their eyes move back and forth the song is interesting too because like when once you start to see the scene from like a more horror perspective it's almost sounds like something you'd hear in like a folk horror movie oh absolutely yeah like they'd be happily chanting that while they like i don't know got like ready for like a sex and sacrifice yeah, yeah, rituals exactly like, yeah. i don't know um and that's something too that like folk horror taps into that idea of like the veneer of things being like very um 
communal and like comforting and warm but at the core of it it's like disturbing at the same time so i think there's definitely something perhaps unintentional but a factor of that at play in this scene i know one of these days i'll do a re-edit of that scene and change the change the music a little bit and the <laughs> editing if i can get through watching the footage but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, I was thinking there's I think there is parallels to Dan's AI moment with this because. Yeah, you're right. It's not necessarily the uncanny valley thing necessarily because they're very much not people. But mm. I think the fact that the, they're supposed to be people, right, like they're supposed to represent people and yeah. then they just don't. <laughs> I think there is something fundamentally scary about that. Yeah, which and like I said, like, the, the movements and everything. Like, which is like, like doll, a lot of people find dolls creepy. I think it would be for the same, the same idea. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like in like ventriloquist dolls, for example, they really like, like they're now seen as like a horror icon kind of thing. But marionettes, like they're, there's yet to be a really good horror movie with uh, with creepy marionettes. I don't know yeah. if I'd watch it if, it, if it was one. <laughs> it's because it'd, it'd, it'd be too scary. It'd be like how The Conjuring is like rated R just because it's so scary. It'd be like, yeah. this is NC-17 because it's too frightening. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That was a good pick. Yeah. yeah. That's just, I don't know, man. That Every, every time I think about horror moments and not, it's not, and it's not meant to be a horror moment. That's the thing where most of the other picks they're meant to be creepy and they're filmed right. in a way to reflect that but this one isn't at all it's just it's meant to be like a charming moment of the children bonding with maria <laughs> and then putting on like a little show for their father and it's uh, i don't know <laughs> and there's other dark moments in the movie but uh, i don't i don't know what they were thinking with that scene i don't like it <laughs> <laughs> Like I, I mean, said, it has nothing to do with the rest of the plot. It's just Robert Wise does have some background in horror. I want to say he did at least one. He Val did the haunting, Luton. right? He did the haunting, which is yeah. really good. Oh yeah, great. Good. Yeah, and he did, I think, at least one Val Luton produced horror film in the '40s, although I can't remember which one. But so you know, he's got he's got a background in it, even though he's like the ultimate old Hollywood example of just like a consummate journeyman filmmaker, because mm -hmm. he made a lot of good stuff, but there's not like any real autorist stamp i think you could identify between like even like his two big musicals west side story and sound of music are completely different musicals very different um so so i don't know maybe he was he was channeling his uh his val luton days yeah i'm, I'm gonna add a little <laughs> bit of spooky to this um, yeah maybe and then when it came out he's like how are you people not terrified <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's like nobody got understood it it was supposed to be a horror movie <laughs> yeah i think it's a good pick though and it's 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 definitely the most unique pick in terms of like a very specific thing and i think that's that's worth yeah. celebrating well yeah and it's just it, it's something that really scared me personally but i like i can totally understand how someone could watch it and be like really you're scared of this but yeah <laughs> something something about that nice lonely goat hurt the <laughs> gotta take a shower now and just feel, feel <laughs> gross <laughs> oh good stuff all right well um ian earlier mentioned uh you know we've talked about bergman before and we will talk about bergman again right now because oh, i should have picked a bergman one and then it just would have been Spielberg. <laughs> i mean it's interesting because bergman's a filmmaker who 
flirted with horror often he's made he's only made one film that is generally considered horror which is hour of the wolf i'd argue virgin spring also fits within that yeah, zone um but a lot of his films will have like elements that are adjacent to horror even if the movies don't fully commit and the main one i want to highlight is 1972's cries and whispers which is one of the darkest and most depressing films he's ever made it's about a woman dying of cancer and she's in her sort of opulent house with her sisters and her her caretaker and you know unlike the seventh seal which approaches death with a sort of with a, a, a darkness but a certain like romanticism in terms of like playing chess with death it's very abstract there's not a sort of physicality to it this movie is not it's basically just her in bed in horrible pain slowly dying horribly um so it's a it's a fun watch but um there's certain elements that do remind me of horror before we even get to the scene I'm talking about. The whole scene is set or the whole film is set for the most part in this house and you get a couple scenes on the, on the grounds, but really you're isolated in this one setting. And while it doesn't necessarily conform to like a Victorian haunted house necessarily, the opulence and the sort of um, uh, style of the home does remind me a little bit of like when you have horror films set in these opulent settings that even sometimes they're haunted sometimes they're not but they have the sense of like history and a foreboding quality the film also is like really vibrant in its use of color and especially red and these like stark red walls that almost reminds me just a little bit of like even what some of the jallo filmmakers would be doing in a couple years not that it looks the same but it's like really striking and specific use of really vibrant and intense colors and especially red which you can read a lot of different things into the use of red but it does add a layer of like um passion whether you view that from like as blood and violence or even in a more romantic way um but the main scene i want to talk about is after the main character has died she comes back to life in this very um and she, it's presented in a more abstract way where we don't actually see her but we hear her voice and we see characters reacting to her and bergman is very careful to withhold us actually seeing her resurrection. She's usually off camera and we just hear her speaking, which gives it that otherworldly quality, or she's in the background of the shot and out of focus. So even though she's like resurrected, she still feels like she's like beyond the sort of lived physical reality. And it's very deliberately withheld. And then eventually the Liv Ullman character, who's one of the, the woman's sisters, um, is brought in to meet with her recently resurrected sister and and talk with her and she's clearly uncomfortable in the scene and eventually agnes who's the the dead woman now resurrected tries to grab onto her just to kiss her sister and hug her and this is the first time we actually start to see her since she's died in focus and on camera although it's still at kind of the periphery of the frame as she's trying to like make her way into the space to have this moment with her sister and Liv Ullman freaks out and has basically a panic attack and pushes her down and, and runs aside. And I, I love this scene in just, in terms of just how it um, creates a uh, anxiety around death. That's unique from what Bergman had done elsewhere in this macabre sense of like people being resurrected, which is something that occurs in a lot of horror stories. And here it manages to create that horrific tone without ever being outwardly horrific. Like it's all just very simple, like keep her off camera. You hear her voice and there's this ominous affect that she carries when she speaks and the way that um, she's withheld from finally being shown. And when she does, it is like this aggressive intervention. And it, I think it does a, just an amazing job of like foregrounding that 
discomfort and inability to deal with death and rooting it in the fear of death in a really like concrete way. Um, and also how like it seems to me very deliberate that Bergman is using horror techniques to convey this point. This idea of like almost hiding the monster, even though it's not like a monster in that sense. It's not a literal zombie. We're not necessarily supposed to be afraid of her, but it is disconcerting. It is uncomfortable and it is like an ominous thing to deal with. And uh, yeah, I think it fits in really well with both this film and a filmography that is often about having horror creep in on the edges to tell stories about, um, I don't know, humanity's place in the world and reconciling with uh, our mortality. So so that's my moment. Nice and simple. Um, great film. Yeah. Cries and whispers, man. Fun in the sun. Have you seen this one, Miles? I haven't. No, my... Uh... I'm I'm pretty limited with what I've seen from Bergman actually. I think I've seen Virgin Spring, uh Seven Seal, Wild Strawberries, and was it Agent Cody Banks 2? Was that yeah, that, that's that's his masterpiece. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, so no, I, I have not, but I have watched your series on it and I I very much yeah, I very much need to get into Bergman because I everything I see and hear about him I really like and I really, really love the ones I have seen. This might but, be the Bergman I'd recommend to you most. Yeah. Um, it sounds this, like it yeah. from everything you're saying. I'm like this, this sounds right up my alley. Hour of the Wolf is the one that's called his horror movie, and there's some ghoulish imagery in there, and I actually think it does a really good job of like creating again horror through its direction. But Cries and Whispers, I think, is one I think is better. Um, but in its own way, I find it like some of the most horrific stuff he's ever made. And yet the film is also it can be viewed in a really hopeful way. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. When did it come out? 72. So 72. It was towards okay. the end of his. Uh, well, actually, his last movie was like 2003. So I guess it wasn't that uh, <laughs> too close to the end. But yeah, Agent Cody Banks, too. Exactly. <laughs> um yeah, I I, uh, I highly, highly recommend this one. It's also of the films, it wasn't the first film he made in color, but it is like the defining Bergman color film because his earlier films sort of uh, aspired for more like naturalism in their cinematography. This one is really expressionistic, right down to the fact that instead of fading to black, it fades to red. Um, yeah, I thought that was interesting when I tried to look up the scene and, you know, I saw a bunch of different clips and they're all in color. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Color. That's not <laughs> that's not Bergman. <laughs> he doesn't do that. Yeah, this is the one that really defines and like his other I haven't seen all of his other color films, but they, none of them are aspiring to this level of like uh, style. Autumn Sonata is probably the one that comes oh. the closest. But uh, I, I would say color plays a pretty huge role in Fanny Alexander, though, too. That's true. It does. But it is more it is a bit more muted and realistic, whereas this is like it's so vibrant. Um, and to me, yeah, like all the all the pieces, like it's hard to describe in some ways why this isn't a full on horror movie it was kind of the other interesting thing with talking about this in this context, because, well, this scene is like horror, I think, and how it like frames death and and uh, a resurrected body as this macabre and, and horrific thing and deliberately hides it in the same way that like in the same way that he does when he hides the reveal of the god puppet in fanny and alexander where he invites your imagination to imagine it to be more grotesque and vivid than it actually is because in actuality it's just her like alive again but at the same time the fact that it's it's set in this opulent isolated uh you know elegant home reminds me a lot of classic horror stories set in like these victorian mansions um the fact that like 
you're watching like the her transformation agnes's transformation as she's dying like she it maybe it's disrespectful in a way to call it horror but seeing her physically decay and how just gaunt and and sullen she looks that has a horrific quality the, the sense of like not overt visceral violence but um cruel ways the family treat each other at points like I don't know. It's a film that is very close to being horror while also being distinctly not a horror movie. And that I find interesting about Bergman in general, but this film in particular. Um, well, horror doesn't have to be ghouls and goblins. Like it can be whatever will give you that sense of dread. And that seems like a very real world horror. Like and something like that is almost scarier than, you know, like the ghoul. <laughs> like, cause it's, <laughs> cause it's real. And that's, what's kind of fun about like a lot of, the horror movies is that you're watching it but you know it you know it's fake you know nothing of it's real but from what you're describing it sounds like it's very realistic and that could very much be something someone would have to go through and that in itself is terrifying mm -hmm. yeah that's a good point too and certainly like while the resurrection element of it is like a fantastical element it's fundamentally clearly uh tapping into a more primal and relatable fear of like one having to reckon with death of people you care about um which also means facing your own mortality and two having to reconcile with your own complicated feelings about someone as they die the fact that like there's this moment of uh agnes as she's been resurrected reaching out for her sister and her sister's not there for her and the sense of like guilt and dread that comes from that feeling um and this is a way that taps into it in a similar way you're talking about like where it's it's a fictional and fantastical um, artifice to explore that, but it's a really human idea at the center of it. So, well, and the fact that it's unnatural that it, you're like, she's probably also thinking this shouldn't be happening and I don't know how to handle it. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is because we have a certain expectation of how things are going to play out and somebody coming back from the dead is not that. So even though it's her sister, she's probably like, like, I don't know how to handle this. And that can be a very real fear for us too. Mm -hmm. No, that's, um, I don't know. That sounds pretty terrifying to me. Mm -hmm. yeah. that's, that sounds like a great horror movie to throw on at a sleepover. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Come on guys, let's, let's watch Cujo and cries and whispers. <laughs> yep. mm -hmm. yeah. Although and it's funny. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, just you mentioning Cujo, the other, I recently watched for the first time, the original pet cemetery. Stephen King oh, adaptation, yeah. Yeah. which I thought was all right, but it's interesting that like Sorry, I think it's better than the remake. But I do too. Uh, mainly that's not necessarily act, saying anything. But the third act of the original really comes together. But um, that's also like in a way, Cries and Whispers is exploring very similar territory to that in terms of. Both it's funny. Grief. That's what I was thinking of. I was thinking about Pet Cemetery and Zelda when uh, you're talking about that. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, like there's there's so it's it's again like a lot of Bergman stuff that's like it rubs up very close to horror and yet it isn't always classified as that. It's why it's always interesting when like hour of the wolf specifically is described as like Bergman's horror movie. And it's like, well, he's kind of been tiptoeing around it in all sorts of films before and after. And I also, it's probably not just sure. the title. Just I mean, like, it's oh, true. It's a spooky title. So yeah. that must be the horror movie. Spoilers. There are no wolves in hour of the wolf. It's a metaphor. <laughs> oh, well. it's a metaphor for the time where both, and this isn't true, but the the time of day where both the most births occur and the most deaths occur. Oh, 
which is a fun idea. I don't think it's rooted in any type of actual fact, (laughs) but it it sounds sounds like some mumbo jumbo right there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, Cries and Whispers uh, is one of his most intense and like, I don't know, like uh, unflinching. Because again, like Seven Seal, it is a more abstract way of facing death. And also it ends in a hopeful way in that, well, Antonius doesn't save himself, but he does save the family. Mm -hmm. They live, but... There's no, there's no salvation in in cries and whispers. Although the film does end with a with a memory of, of contentment and happiness, and not a memory of like, I don't know, grueling suffering. So there's some hope in there. Nice. As you're describing the scene, um, and like how it plays out and the techniques that he uses, and honestly, the whole conversations we've been having all day, it kind of makes you realize that even though we tend to pigeonhole these movie directors right like Bergman is does contemplative dramas Spielberg does family films right this person is a horror director this person is a comedy director you know Martin Scorsese only does mob films which is an argument that's out there right now that's Kundun, baby it's my favorite gangster <laughs> but, movie <laughs> but it makes you realize that like the great filmmakers have a toolkit and they they know how to because they study all the great filmmakers before them right and so they have that toolkit that when they need to do a horrific scene when they need to do a suspenseful scene they know how to do that they know how to build that even though it's not necessarily what they're known for they still have all those skills with them which is um which is comforting right which is a comforting thought when you're when you want to watch a movie by somebody who has an absolute handle on their craft yeah Mm-hmm. And Dan, I think I, I think you've said before how like some of the best horror movies are made from non-horror directors. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, so yeah, like what are you saying? They just have that that craft, and then when they're when they're faced with that genre, they know how to handle it in their style. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's good stuff. Yep, good scene. Yeah, so a lot of Bergman, a lot of Spielberg today. Yeah, a lot, a lot of puppets. A lot of puppets. <laughs> a lot of puppets. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even AI is like a Pinocchio, you know, analogy. So yeah, a lot yeah. of puppets. Yeah, oh boy. Did you watch yeah. that new Pinocchio? No, no I don't think I, I could bring I myself. I don't know anyone who did. I didn't even know it came out. And it just... <laughs> it's so sad that it's like Ben Robert Zemeckis at one point was like, not that he was as good as Spielberg, but he had a similar degree of like clout as like a major filmmaker who mm. could kind of push forth on his own projects and now he's making directed disney plus yeah movies and like i think the witches was also a direct to hbo max so it's like man yeah, yeah it was yeah oh yeah. how the mighty have fallen yeah it's too bad yeah well there we go so there's our non non-horror horror scenes i suppose or horror moments yeah, I think it was good. And we were thinking of doing like uh the next one as non-horror scenes from horror movies. But I think we've actually talked I don't think we're going to do that because I think we've talked about that before. Sometimes the hor- our greatest moments from horror movies are the non-scary scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know we've totally those up before so. But we we are going to have a well last last year we did like we broke it up by eras right like we did like the old horror movies and new horror movies so just to give our audience a little taste we're going to be doing more of like genres within horror i think is what we're going to look at so nice nice there's a lot to explore there so yeah that's good Mm -hmm. stuff yeah 
I tried to you know. sell Ian on doing satanic horror, but I was unsuccessful. <laughs> we got to do a Satanism episode. It's like, I don't think so. <laughs> so, no Satan this year. Although maybe I'll rope him into my picks. Who knows? Well, you'd have to be talking about uh, the new Hocus Pocus movie. Did you hear that? That uh, oh, that's true. I did. Mothers see that are story, up in arms yeah. about it being a Satanist movie. Or something. I mean, the right to be uh, up in arms. It sucks. Oh, it's really bad. Yeah, I saw it. It's the best Walgreens commercial I've ever seen. Oh, oh boy, God. it's I, pretty rough. I don't know. I might, I really, really don't like the original, so I can't imagine I'll, I'll watch this one. It, but... It's funny. I remember thinking the original felt like like a baby movie. I mm-hmm. still kind of feel that way. This sequel makes that look like The Exorcist. Like, it's so, like, <laughs> soft and non-threatening. And I understand it's, like, a kid's movie, but, like, so Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. And it still oh, had some yeah. Teeth. God, I debated bringing that up, actually. But, again, it's kind of meant to be a horror movie. But I think that was the first, like, yeah, that movie scared the crap out of me as a kid on Zombie Island. Mm-hmm. It's still good. It, that movie holds up really well, actually. Yeah, it, it's so far above what a directive video Scooby Doo movie in the '90s had to be. <laughs> oh, that it's for like sure. Baffling. Yeah. No, it so, deals with some good stuff. That yeah. that's a really good one. Well, how about that? Never even heard of it. It's good. Oh, I did not know there was a Scooby Doo zombie movie. Well, I mean, like it's. I mean, it's not. It's <laughs> it's no The Shining, but like it's for for, for what it is. Yeah, there good. there was a run of direct to video Scooby Doo movies starting in I think late nineties with Zombie Island, and then ending in about two thousand two or three. But it's like Zombie Island, uh, The Witch's Ghost, The Alien Invaders, and The Cyber Chase. I think mm-hmm. those are the four. Yeah. Um, and all of them are varying degrees of like fun. The first one is the best one. Um, yeah. And then the second one's a little bit worse, and the third one's. A little bit worse, but then the fourth one kind of brings it back a bit. So, yeah, so, yeah. No, the the animation is really is really well done on Zombie Island. It's it's very creepy, like the design of the zombies and mm-hmm. all the voodoo stuff too. Like the concept of voodoo dolls is just so like freaky, and then the way they do it in the movie, like oh yeah, that's mm-hmm. good. anyway, that's a whole other. <laughs> that's a whole other <laughs> we could do like best Scooby Doo movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's really only those four is the good ones. Oh boy. I don't think Scooby-Doo WrestleMania Mystery 1 or 2 is supposed to be very good. <laughs> or 2. Oh I think they made two of them. I believe you. Yeah. Do you so, see that new show that they have where it's like they have like a different celebrity guest every week? No, but it's like Scooby-Doo me. and Guess Who and it's like Ricky Oh, Gervais that's what the gimmick and is. Like The Rock and stuff. Like it's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I haven't watched it, but I just know that it exists. So Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. Well, who knew we'd end the show off on Scooby Doo Todd? But <laughs> there we are. <laughs> oh man. Well, Miles, thanks for coming oh, on thank again. Thank you so much for having me back. This is great. I'm always happy to talk about talk about spooky stuff for the spooky season. And I'm pretty sure that in all the movie podcasts that are out there, that we'll be talking about all these um, scary movies all month. Probably we're the only ones bringing up sound to music. So <laughs> the scariest <laughs> movie ever made. Mm-hmm. Uh, I horror legend. Uh, what was his name? Ray Wise. Robert Wise. Robert Wise. Ray Wise. No, that's I an think, actor. Yeah, Ray Wise is the Twin Peaks guy. I think. Yes. Yes, yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. Do you have anything to anything to plug or anything? No, no, really. I don't do anything that interesting. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Thank you, though. Oh, no. Um, Dan, you got anything going on eyebrow coming up soon? 
Uh, so I'm working on the next video. I did like people may have seen like a brief supercut of the dissolve transitions from The Shining. Yeah, yeah, that was great. I, I'm waiting for your follow up with all the transitions in Saw Four. Oh, <laughs> that's the money. Uh, I think someone already has uploaded that video. Sadly, um, you can just re-upload it under that's your. That's true. <laughs> Um, but that was uh, that was a fun project for its own sake, but it was also a bit of a teaser for another Shining-themed video that uh, will be coming out at some point in October, hopefully nice. within the next two weeks. We'll see. Sweet. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. If you have moments from, from non-horror movies that have freaked you out, let us know. So tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds or email us at cinema in seconds at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, Miles again, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And I've been Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll see you next week. High on a hill was a lonely goat herd. Lay, hoodlay, hoodlay. Loud was the voice of the lonely goat herd. Lay, hoodlay, hoodlay.